Well, if you will take God's word, please, and turn with me to the end of Acts and chapter 2. We'll find the portion of God's word that we are studying this evening in particular. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. With many other words, Peter testified and exhorted his congregation, saying, Be saved from this perverse or twisted generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptised, and that day about 3,000 souls were added. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's again seek our God's face together. Lord God, in the simplicity of this description, may we find something tonight that is both lively and deeply attractive, something attainable not by dint of human effort and endeavour, not by uh, trying to, to be better and whip ourselves into shape in the wrong sense, but rather something to which, by your gracious spirits working in the souls of sinners, those sinners saved by grace may truly aspire. So, O oh God, grant that insofar as this can and should be true of every church of Christ, it will be increasingly true of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Holy Spirit creates life. It was he who hovered over the surface of the deep when God, by his word, called all things out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. And the Holy Spirit is active also in the new creation. Now, what form does the new creation take when the Holy Spirit is hovering over the surface of the deep? And the answer is that in its present stage, the life that the Spirit creates is that of the new covenant community of Jesus Christ, the church of the living God. It is under then the Holy Spirit's influence that Peter preaches and that those in Jerusalem hear. And the apostolic ministry, blessed by the Spirit's work in the hearts of those who hear it, brings about a spiritual family that is defined by its relationship to Jesus Christ. This is now heaven upon earth. This is the reign of the King of Kings in the hearts of men. This is the, the heavenly citizenship 
that is now existing here on earth and will come to its final fruition on the day when this same Jesus returns in all his power and glory. And so by the end of Acts chapter 2, you have a portrait of the new covenant church in its infancy, small but perfectly formed, we might say. And I say small, recognising that by the time we finish this, there are 3,000 and more who have been added to them. It is not a perfect church because there is no perfection in the church on this side of glory. But everything that a church should be, this church is. It will have lessons to learn, most assuredly. There will be chastisings that come. It will start to miss certain things. It will quickly begin to twist certain things. And as we work our way through these early chapters of the book of Acts, we will see God intervening to maintain the purity of his new covenant people. He's not going to let these fall into some of the same traps and errors as Israel did when it was brought out of Egypt under the old covenant. And what you see then with all of those things taken into account is at least at its very core and root something of what a true New Testament church should be, must be, and therefore something of what we as a congregation must be and should be. It is this kind of description that should make us say in effect, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do I need to respond? Where do I need to adapt? Where do I need to change the way that I think and the way that I feel and the way that I act in order that I may be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, both in my own individual discipleship and as part of the church, which is the body of Jesus Christ. And so I simply want, and I, I in God's kindness, I think it's, splendidly appropriate to run through some of the features of this new covenant community and I trust that uh, by the time we've identified just the first one or two you'll be saying aha I see how well this fits the occasion first of all then this new covenant community formed by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit is a believing community it is a believing community those who gladly received the good news of Christ that Peter preached were baptised. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And then they're described as verse 44, as all who believed who were now together. Under the sweet heavenly influences of the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Ghost, there has been a great response to the preaching of Peter. Those who are hearing in this way, those who are feeling the heavenly touch of the Holy Spirit are granted faith and so receive forgiveness. Let every one of you be repenting, be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And so this community is described as those who received the word and believed the word. 
That's the first thing that identifies them. The truth has been proclaimed. The Lord Jesus Christ has been held up and offered out to all who need him. There is no nominal Christianity in this New Testament church. There should not be. At this stage, there is not. You know what nominal Christianity is? Nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only. A reputation for being a Christian. A desire to have an attachment to this idea of Christ and his religion, but no real living faith. That is not here at this point in history. Those who gladly received, those who truly believed the good news of Jesus Christ, they are the ones who form this community. And that then is the first thing for everybody here this evening. Are you believing? Are you gladly receiving? Have you gladly received the truth that has been spoken to you concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour of sinners? That is the way into the new covenant community. There is nothing for you to do because the work has all been done. You need not save yourselves. You cannot save yourselves because Christ both has saved and alone can save all who put their trust in him. You do not need to, to climb up to heaven because Christ has come down to you. You cannot, should not, never will be able to add anything to his accomplishments. All that needs to happen, and you may do it now with your next breath, not even speaking a word outwardly, but casting yourself inwardly upon this Jesus, is, as it were, to drop into the arms of Almighty God as he offers you salvation in Christ Jesus, and you are a Christian. The description of this church is not those who'd been uh, working particularly hard, not those who'd merited something of God's favour, not those who'd been living very impressive lives up to that point. Preach the good news. Begin with the Christ crucifiers at Jerusalem. And those who believe, I will save, I will forgive them, I will give my spirit to dwell in their hearts and all who so trust shall come into my kingdom. It is as simple and as sweet and as stunning as that. Are you believing? Well, if you are, you are one of Christ's. And the second feature of this new covenant community is that as a believing community, it is a baptised community. There is no one here who is halting between two opinions. No one here who says, I am a Christian, but I do not wish at this time to be baptised. The command of Christ is clear, that those who are made disciples should be baptised in the triune name, that of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 38, 
Peter says, be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and he's not saying they're not in the name of the Father or the Spirit, but he's saying you are to identify yourself with him who has lived for you and died for you and risen again on your behalf. You are saying, I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, that despised man to whom the, the Jews were, were full of loathing and distaste as a nation. But this is the Jesus who was crucified, whom God has made both Lord and Christ. And by being baptised in his name, I am saying that I take God's estimation of him as my own. This is the Lord. This is the Christ. This is the saviour of sinners. To be baptised is to declare oneself a disciple of Jesus Christ and to be recognised by those who baptise as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It is a public testimony of faith in his person and of dependence on his work. What does it look like? Well, you had the privilege of seeing one this morning, if you were here then. A believing person testifying of faith in Jesus Christ, wishing to walk in his ways, who is baptised in the name of God. If you have believed, you ought to be baptised. Now, under our circumstances, we do not often baptise within a, moment, a matter of uh, hours or sometimes days. Because of our circumstances, there is sometimes something of a delay between the immediate profession and the act of baptism. But the connection is there, and we must take pains that we do not in some way bend or twist or separate those two elements. People who believe should be baptised. That's the testimony outwardly of the inward reality. And it is the front door into the visible community of God's holy people. Then it is a faithful community. Because those who have believed and been baptised, added to the church, <coughs> verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. Verse 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. They were devoting themselves to their life together, breaking bread from house to house, eating their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. You see, when you believe in Jesus Christ and you are baptised into his name, you become part of a true church of Jesus Christ. You are, in that sense, no longer a free agent. You are not a random Roma. You are part of the household of God. And that brings you into a community that is governed by certain appetites, certain attitudes, certain actions. And these men and women, hearing, believing and baptised, now continue steadfastly and devote themselves to living out the realities of their new life in Jesus Christ. There are new contours to this life. There's a new pattern to this life. There's a new direction to this life. Christians are devoted to apostolic teaching. 
They could not get enough of the apostles telling them more about Jesus Christ and the great plan of God for salvation in him. These men and women were eagerly absorbed in the apostolic instruction. They were seeing things with newly opened eyes. They were feeling things with newly enlivened hearts. They were entering into things with souls that had been made vital and, and energetic by the inward working of the Holy Spirit. My friends, no healthy child of God needs to be urged and whipped and exhorted to come and hear more about Jesus Christ. The problem is, really, do they ever need to be stopped? I would much, much rather have to call someone and say, brother, sister, under the present circumstances, I do not think it would be wise for you to come. I'd much rather have someone who calls me at sort of nine o'clock on a, a very snowy Sunday morning and say, pastor, I'm going to try and make it, but the roads out here are about a foot deep in snow and there's a thick layer of ice underneath. Please, brother, sister, under those circumstances, stay at home. But the appetite, the effort, the endeavour, the normal reality should be, I want to be where God's people are hearing the truth that God has spoken to us. They're devoted to the teaching. They're devoted to fellowship. They've got this life in common with one another. There's a mutual care. There's a shared interest. There's a blessed tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Somebody who was here this morning speaking to me, watching what was going on with the, the world of uh, church life, was saying such things as, it's as if such, well, Jane in this case, it's as if Jane is a new person. Well, I can explain why that is. <laughs> it's because Jane is a new person. But it's, it's almost like you're seeing a big family at work. Well, I can explain why that is. It's because this is a big family at work. And, and, and the language that this visitor was using and the sense that this visitor had, I was able to say, well, that's, yeah, you're seeing the Bible in action. That is just what we are. We're new creatures. We become part of the family of God. We belong to a particular household together. We're joined by this love and this affection. And you're reaching almost naturally for the very language that the Bible provides you with to describe who and what the church of Jesus Christ is. And these new covenant believers were devoting themselves and continuing steadfastly in that kind of shared common life. Then there was breaking of bread. Now this may well include eating and drinking together, enjoying fellowship with each other more generally, but I think it at least has some reference, perhaps even primary reference, to the celebration together of the Lord's table. The privilege of declaring together that we belong to that household by sitting down at the table which the head of the home, the eldest son, Jesus Christ, has laid for us, this one being supplied by his own body and blood. The Lord's Supper, my friends, is a sweet privilege not to be overlooked 
or neglected. And then they devoted themselves to prayers. Now, again, the language here seems to suggest not just that they were a, a generically praying people, but that they made a point of gathering together to pray. It was a priority of their new life to come together as God's people in order to call upon the name of the Lord at the throne of grace. It was their joy to meet together and to put heart after heart behind voice after voice as those who were speaking on behalf of the whole, as it were, drew together after them in their petitions. The, the, the souls and the longings of those for whom they spoke. Now again, I appreciate that there are what we describe as providential hindrances. There are times and there are seasons, there are occasions and there are reasons why some people genuinely cannot be where they long to be. And I would want no one here... Uh, indeed, I want no one who's not here because they can't be here to feel guilty on account of what it is not reasonable to expect given their present circumstances. But where would you be if you could be? Are you committed to prayers? Will you have your place when the church gathers to pray with as much conviction as commitment as in any other of our church duties. Now again, I appreciate that we do not usually meet for prayer as a church on the first day of the week, the day of worship, but rather in the middle of the week. Taking even that into account a different day in terms of your priorities and your commitments, do you love to be part of a praying church? Do you look forward to the prayer meetings of the congregation? Do you long for our prayer meetings to be as well attended as our other services, as a reflection of the fact that we continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers? That it should be as normal for us to think in terms of gathering as a congregation teaching our children to be in the habit of being part of a praying church as we would want them to be in the habit of participating in the public worship services on the Lord's Day. Is this then our appetite? Is this our commitment? Remember again, not because I have to, but because you can't stop me, because I am alive in Christ by the Holy Spirit, and I want to be with others who share that same life. Does it describe our life? Praise God, brothers and sisters. I think in some measure and by God's grace, it does. Always more we desire. But you have the privilege of belonging to a congregation that in principle has set out in our church constitution that these are our priorities. And you've said, in effect, what Jane will say this evening, I want to be part of a church that continues steadfastly in those things. And I want to be a lively element in that congregation. I want to participate in the life of this body. 
do we come then eagerly in every expression of apostolic teaching, whether it's public or private. If I can, I will be there in fellowship. These are my people. This is my family. We belong together. The breaking of bread, that yes, we will sit down together. We will remember our Lord together and in prayers. When we have the opportunity, we'll unite heart and voice at the throne of grace. That's what a church is. Believing, baptised and faithful in pursuing those things. And sadly, we are in a time and a place where the notion of church has been so degraded and diluted that to describe a church in those ways sounds like something extraordinary, unusual, and only to be pursued by the keen and the stupid. Rather than, that's what church life is. And that is as natural as breathing to one who's been born again from above then it's what I'm going to describe as a potent community. Wrestled with this, what else can I call it? Let me describe it, it may be easier. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. These were people praising God and having favour with all the people. This was no limp and lifeless congregation. This wasn't a, a group of people who kind of sludged together, like pouring muck into a, into a big receptacle and the, the stuff just gathers at the bottom. These people came with spiritual vibrancy. It was a congregation that was marked by the presence of God in their midst in such a way that awe and wonder were the mark of those participating and those who were watching. It seems that this language, fear came upon every soul, seems to suggest the, the, the mentality of the disciples as they gathered together, conscious of the fact that God was in their midst. And it's also the attitude of people toward the saints. There was a wonder at what God was doing and how God was present with them. Maybe something a little bit like the, uh, the exhortation of Paul to the Corinthians, that when an unbeliever comes in amongst you, they fall on their faces recognising that God is in your midst. The sense that in this place it is clear that God is with us. When these people gather, there's a sense of spiritual reality. When this preaching takes place, it is evident that what is spoken is true. When this life is lived, it is the life of the inner man in Christ Jesus now being made manifest. There's substance, there's reality, there's beauty, there is majesty, there is glory in this place. And that, in a sense, at least at this point, brings favour from people. Fear and favour. Because God is present. Wonders and signs being done through the apostles. Again, notice that the signs and wonders that were performed in the early church were not universal. It was the apostles who showed the signs of the apostles. These men who were preaching and teaching were the ones who also were doing wonders and signs 
the things that accompanied the teaching affirming and demonstrating that reality, which is precisely what happened in the ministry of their Lord. You can go back to chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You remember that Jesus who spoke to you in that way? And you remember the, the signs by which God demonstrated the validity of his claims? As with the master, so with the servants. They too are speaking, and through them wonders and signs are being accomplished by God to testify to the reality of their claims. Don't you wish that no one could come into this building without a sense that God is with us? And you might say, well, you just said that something of that had happened. Yeah, but don't you want more? <laughs> don't you want more of that reality for your own soul? That, that you're far from not wanting to, you're not able to contemplate the worship of God together without something of a holy awe and eagerness settling upon your soul. We are going to meet with Jesus Christ. We are going because that is where the Spirit of God has given some particular promises of his gathering together with the saints. We are going because God draws near and we hear his voice in his word. And when we sing his praises and when we raise our hearts and voices in prayer, we know that heaven is touching earth. My friends, are we a potent community? Do people, if not physically, at least inwardly, feel a, a weight of the majesty of God, the heaviness of the presence of the Almighty when we are worshipping him? Not a kind of a solemn dullness, not some kind of ritualistic melancholy, but the reality of spiritual truth. Then they were not only believing and baptised and faithful and potent, but they were a united community. All were together. They were acting, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. These people marched in step with one another. These people's hearts beat in time with one another. Do you remember the, is it the Millennium Bridge over the Thames when it was first built? That it had the, the sway on it? And you remember what happened? To begin with, it was fine. But as more and more people went onto the bridge, the bridge began to sway. And without anybody realising it, everybody on the bridge began to walk and sway in time with the swaying of the bridge. So that the sway of the bridge, the rhythm of the swing, became more and more pronounced. And they started doing particular studies. And you'd walk on in one rhythm, and the whole movement of the bridge, you would end up contributing to the overall movement. That's what it should be like when you walk into the Church of Jesus Christ. You fall in step. And you contribute to the swing, to the momentum of the whole. There's a, there's a rhythm of life 
and you are a participant in it. You are not the one who shows their their particular dignity of mind by standing at a distance and not wanting to get involved. You're not the person who celebrates their individuality by, by not participating and not getting involved. You're throwing yourself into the life of God's people. Our hearts and our lives ought to be intertwined with one another. When there are sorrows, we should be sharing them. When there are joys, we should be entering into them. There should be a sweet responsiveness in the life of this body so that although not everyone may know everything, that you can, especially with those to whom you are closest, you can enter into these things together. It's the fellowship of the common meal. It's, again, something of what happened today. And we said, let's, this is no criticism, by the way, let's get a few people together to host Jane and her family and friends. Okay, it's a second fellowship meal unofficially. Pretty much everybody's here. It was lovely. It was great. But isn't it normal, nice, natural to see those kinds of things taking place? And I'm not saying in terms of criticism either that you shouldn't have been there or that you should have been there. But there was a, a normalcy about it. People felt ready to sit down, to contribute, to enjoy and to talk together. It's life as a spiritual family. And let me remind you that we do not work from the dysfunction of the family that you may know according to your, your earthly connections and therefore fear that God's family will be like that. God's family ought to be modelled and patterned according to the word of God. And it may be that some of us need to learn what a holy family dynamic looks like so that we can enter into the life of the church without fear or suspicion, such as being our unhealthy experience. These people saw themselves as a household constituted by God, governed by Christ, bound together by the Holy Spirit. And it's our privilege to feel that unity, to have that attitude toward one another and to express it in the way that we live toward one another, speak with one another, communicate with one another. I need to press on. Being united, it was loving. The unity was not merely notional. It was not the unity of a certain list of names written on a certain piece of paper. Now you can call a register in a classroom in the morning. It doesn't mean that everybody in the classroom is united in the same desire to be instructed and to labour together. But here you've got a practical unity worked out, not in a kind of early communism, but in genuinely shared lives. All who believed were together, verse 30, 44, and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. <coughs> now it seemed then that there were Christians in this congregation who were selling their possessions for the sake of the community as a whole. 
Now, some of that's going to get played out and clarified in chapter 4 from verse 32. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now, what does this mean? Well, for one thing, remember that at this point in time, there are many pilgrims in Jerusalem. There are lots of people who are passing through because they've gathered together for the the great festival of Passover. They're far from home. They don't have their things with them. But now God in his power has made himself known. Christ has been lifted up as the saviour of sinners. And these people want to spend time together. And so there is this mutual investment in the life of the community of God's people. We need to say at least a few things about it. It is voluntary. It wasn't a case of people going to somebody and saying, you need to give me this. That's communism, in my opinion. But it was, it was voluntary. Notice, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food. It was as people had need. It was not as people made demands. So it was voluntary. It was occasional. It was a response to need. When you saw that there was something that was required, you could make a difference to it. And it was individual. They broke bread from house to house. That means at least some of them had houses left. Some of them might have had enough. Mark, John Mark, he brought, uh, sold land and property, didn't he? And he brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. But at least some of them still had houses in which they could extend hospitality to the church or at least to portions of it as this community grew. So we should take care and not turn this into some kind of imposed political ecclesiastical system. But brothers and sisters, while you're taking care, don't take away what it actually says. Sometimes we read words like this, and by the time we've finished qualifying them, we've got nothing left to take away. Do not take away everything. They had all things in common, They sold their possessions and goods. They divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, the epistles show the same spirit in slightly different contexts. What would be the equivalent of this in the letter to the Galatians, for example? Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's not saying, in essence, anything different to what was taking place in Jerusalem at the end of Acts chapter 2. Or here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. I want you to aspire a quiet life, to mind your own business, And to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So it's not saying, for example, that you can afford to be lazy 
or careless and that somehow the church is obliged to keep your pockets, your wallets, your purses, your bank accounts full regardless of the decisions that you make. No, you get to work hard so that you may have something to give to those who are in need. Or you've got Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labour, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is in need. What do you have? Do you have homes? Do you have cars? Do you have food? Do you have clothes? Do you have money? Do you have something else? Do you have a brother or sister who needs it? Because in the providence of God, they've come into a situation where you, by your diligent labour and your generous spirit, have a full heart and a full hand with which to fill up their empty one. That is New Testament Christianity. In some senses, it is not spectacular. In others, it is wonderfully radical. Because whatever may be the political claims and systems that this world tries to create, they are all of them fundamentally marred by the selfishness and the self-centeredness of the people who participate in them. This is the selfless community where our great concern is to bless others rather than ourselves. Is there anything here that we could more fully express? Is there any way in which we could more completely invest? And remember too, that by doing this, sometimes you're enabling somebody to do more for somebody else as well. I imagine that almost every Christian in this room is able to look back over a period of weeks or months or years, even a whole lifetime, and I confess readily and cheerfully that I am not the least of them in this place, that almost everything that I am able to do now, I have been in measure enabled to do by the kindness of others toward me in time past. My friends, these things ripple out, and that's the way it should be, for God is no man's debtor. There's a joyful community here. A joyful community. Then those who gladly received his word were baptised. It's a joyful thing to be a Christian. It's a delight to walk in the ways of the Lord. They gladly received, and then notice verse 46, they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. A glad reception of God's word led to a glad and happy engagement in the life of the community of those who had received God's word. They did it with a sincere heart. They had an open spirit. There was a holy transparency. There was a delight in being together in the presence of God. There was a joy in gathering. There was a pleasure in worshipping. They liked being not just where God was, but they liked being together where God was. 
It was not that they sat together, as it were, in a little bubble, hermetically sealed from the people who were around them, trying to move in and out of this gathering without ever really participating, engaging, responding or speaking to one another. I think I've said it before, it's, it's, it's not true at this point in time, but there have, been, there have been occasions, and I don't think I'm the only pastor who feels like this, it's like, do you have holes in the walls that you get out of the building by? Because it sometimes feels that there are people who call themselves Christians and members of the church. I don't know if they're climbing out the windows, maybe they're using the fire exits, but they seem to have no appetite or desire to participate in the life of the body as a whole. Does that sound like this? Does that sound like open-heartedness? You know there are times when maybe things are pressing down upon you and you need a bit of breathing space. There are times when you perhaps you just need to sit quietly at the end of the service and, and, and perhaps you don't want somebody right then to come and see how you are. Or perhaps you don't know what else to do and the best thing someone could do is to come and see how you are. And a word of love patient kindness opens up the depths of your soul and does you wonderful good these people liked being with each other and they liked being where they were together with god by the holy spirit there was no restraint in their righteous dealings with one another brothers and sisters do we put up with each other or do we delight in each other it's radically different. It smells different. It tastes different. It feels different. When God's people love to be with God and his people. And then last but not least, a growing community. There was an inward love and there was an outward look. It's at least possible that the last verse of this chapter should be translated praising God and having favour toward all the people, a sort of a, a good will expressed outwardly. But as Peter was testifying and exhorting, saying, be saved from this perverse generation, so it seemed as if that continued taking place. The Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. This was a congregation that was attracting people because God was in their midst and was reaching out to people because they wanted others to know that God was in their midst. The promise was to them and to their children and to those who were afar off, as many as the Lord their God would call. And they delighted to see the call of God taking place. There were more and more people who were turning to Jesus Christ, and that was normal. My friends, conversion should not be a strange thing with us. Under God and with the full acknowledgement of his sovereign dispensation of his saving favour, it is normal for churches to grow. It is normal for God to save sinners by the lives and testimony of the church of the living God. People were believing. They were being baptised and they were being added to the church is it still happening you see how appropriate this is it's happening today we've come to one of those visible points in the life of the church 
where someone believing has been baptised and added to the church of Jesus Christ. Who's next? Not who feels the pressure. Not who has been somehow cajoled by an eager parent or, or bullied by an older friend or whatever it may be. But someone who says, yeah, I'm with them. Because I'm with him. I have heard the word of the living God. The spirit has gripped my soul with the truth. He has shown me Jesus Christ. And I too ought to be baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, testifying of my allegiance to Jesus Christ and united to the New Testament community. My friends, believe. And when you believe, you should be baptised, added to the church, entering in, not just to a gang, but to this family, this body, this kind of life. This is not optional extras to the idea of Christianity. This is Christianity. This is essential. This is foundational, fundamental. The New Testament church at this point is small and young, but perfectly formed. Everything is there that ought to be there. If we are a New Testament church, then praise God, the same is true of us. And my question to you, brothers and sisters, is it enough to have some of all? Or do you not desire more of all? To see more and more faith springing up, more and more people being baptised, more and more faithfulness, eagerness, more and more potency, more and more unity, more and more charity, more and more joy, more and more added to the church. Who gives it? The Spirit of God gives life. It's why there is any life out of our death. It's why there's any light in our darkness. It's why there's any peace in our souls. It's why there's any communion with God in Jesus Christ. And the more we desire this, it honours him. And we go to him and we should be saying, oh God, thank you. Thank you from the depths of our hearts that you have made us yours and that you have bound us together. And oh God, in your mercy, give us more and more and more to the praise of the glory of your grace. Amen.